Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Andrew Harrison. This week on the show, the fight for the right. The hardline Tory National Conservative Conference tries to push the Conservatives even further towards the fringes. But is it all really just about Operation Dump Rishi? Plus, could we be coming to the end of the age of gerontocracy? Mel Stride, the Work and Pension Secretary, wants to put the state pension age up to 68 in the first couple of years of the next Parliament, which the Conservatives will definitely be in charge of. Could the Tories be about to lose their grip on their client vote? And in the wake of Liverpool's Eurovision triumph, Scouse shares with Brummy the distinction of being supposedly the least trustworthy accent in the country. We rail against this criminal injustice. OK, let's meet the panel. Hannah Fern is a columnist for the iNewspaper. Hello, Hannah. Hello. So you're also our housing desk, and it emerged last week that the leasehold system is not going to be abolished in England and Wales this year, even though Michael Gove promised that he would scrap it. What, what does this mean? This is a bit, a bit crap of them. Housing desk, I like that. Yeah. Does it come with a pay rise? Well, I've um, this. <laughs> so, yes, this is crap. Personally, I'm aggrieved because mm-hmm. I won't go into the boring long story now, but I am down to the tune of £70,000 due to a leasehold error missed by my conveyancing solicitor. Um, this is a hugely popular policy. Mm. Any, you know, anyone who's got a, a small flat... Uh, um, you know, is likely to be in one of these. It's, it's really, really common in the UK. Um, but Gove has worked out that it's um, um, basically impossible to unpick, um, certainly within the remaining term of this government. So he's dropped it. Uh, he's promised some concessions on things like ground rent and high service charges, which dog the lives of leaseholders. But he has dropped this promise to convert leasehold into common hold, which would basically mean you would never have an end date to the lease and you give you power over how your building is managed and how much that costs you, which is, you know, what people want. It's a philosophical issue, really, in a way, especially for the Tories, because it's about the rights of land ownership. So how do you get out of this without giving huge compensation payments? Um, but I think he's, he's a bit, uh, um, he's both foolish and weak to have just walked away from it. I think housing does will be returning to this one as, uh, as, as time goes by. Tom Peck is the independent political sketch writer. All right, Tom. Hello. Are you very excited at the prospect of Lord David Frosty Frost becoming an actual elected <laughs> Conservative MP? Like, I think one of my most in- the, one of the most enjoyable aspects, if not the most enjoy- enjoyable aspect of my daily life, and I'm sure we've all done it, is when you click on one of David Frost's Telegraph columns, and then you get that feeling of a sort of like a warming balm spreading back over you while it fades into paywalled grey, and you realise that. <laughs> you can't actually read it and they actually want you to pay them to read it when I 100% wouldn't read it even if the deal was the other way around. 18 months from now, like these absolute wingnuts are without any shadow of a doubt going to be yesterday's news. And if David Frost replaces Andrew Bridgen in Northwest Derbyshire, then naturally we extend our sympathies to the people of Northwest Derbyshire. Quite what they've done to deserve it, I don't know, but you can't necessarily say that the quality of their representation has gone either up or down. They're just, they're just had, had some bad luck land upon them, haven't they? And what would you say to the people of Leicestershire? Because Guido is briefing that he's going for Bridgen. Derbyshire was the first one, one of the Derbyshire seats. I don't know which one. And then, and then the latest was, I think, Northwest Leicestershire, which is Bridgen's seat. So that's going to be a real alien versus predator. Can, can they both lose? And possibly will <laughs> both lose. I just exactly. think he'll lose. And then they write loads of columns attacking incompetent candidate David Frost for not taking the advice of genius electoral strategist Lord Frost. That's what he'll do. <laughs> but the, beautiful, the beautiful thing is that he has to stand down as a peer in order to be eligible to be selected as a candidate for the general election in the for, to, to the Commons, so if he doesn't win, he's lost both. 
So uh, you heard the voice there of Naomi Smith, Chief Executive of Best of Britain. Hello, Naomi. Hi. So you've got your Trade Unlocked conference coming up, which mixes the great and the good of all the people Boris Johnson said fuck business to. The Bank of England's raised interest rates to 4.5%. They're warning the rates are going to stay higher for longer. Are you getting the sense that the business creaking is finally awakening to demand more engagement with the EU? Absolutely. Um, and more and more trade bodies are coming out with similar um bullish proposals around uh, resetting that relationship with Europe, making some some pretty strident demands uh, of what they need. You know, this isn't about uh, any kind of remoning. This is about rational business behaving in a rational way, which is to say, well, we're either going to just have to trade domestically um, or stop trading or move out of the UK unless you improve trading conditions here. So yeah, tradeunlocked.co.uk is the website. You can find out more about the conference there. Um, we'd love to have any Ogwen listeners who um, run businesses, work for businesses, um, and who feel that they've got something to contribute because the whole point of the day is to have business, no matter which sector, you know, whether it's from a more totemically leave voting constituency like agriculture, farming, fishery, or from a sector like finance, fintech, pharmaceuticals that long warned us uh, that, that putting up trade barriers with Europe would come at a pretty significant economic cost. We're bringing them all together, giving everybody a platform alongside some very, very senior policymakers. Um, keep your eyes peeled uh, on the Trade Unlock website for some big names being revealed in the next couple of weeks um, to, to put maximum pressure on the political parties as they write those manifestos over the summer before a 2024 general election saying, you're all going to talk about growth and we're the guys that know how to grow things. We've got businesses that we want to grow. And at the moment, our wings are being clipped by you guys. So listen to us and here are the things that need to happen pretty pronto if we're to give the economy the shot in the arm that it needs. It's where the woke arati meet the work arati. Before we start, a reminder that the next Oh God, What Now Live is nearly here. The team are in London next Wednesday, the 24th of May at the Leicester Square Theatre, and they would love to see you there. It is a timeless lineup. Alex Andreu, Arthur Snell and Marie LeConte will be there. If we can tear her away from the new Zelda, Ross Taylor will be keeping them all in check. It'll be a great evening of political doomsaying, analysis and brain wrestling, so don't miss it. Tickets are on sale now at leicestersquaretheatre.com and Patreon people get a discount, of course. Just check your inboxes. Oglebot now live. It's the Coachella of Remainers. First up, it's gloves off in the Conservative Party again. Firstly, the spiciest fruitcakes have assembled in Bournemouth to attack the source of all Britain's woes, the Conservative Party itself, at the conference of Lord Cruddus's new Conservative Democratic Organisation, the UK's answer to America's CPAC. Pretty Patel set the tone by wading into the Prime Minister. Some parts of Westminster and our colleagues have done a better job of damaging our party than the opposition, the left-wing campaign groups, the civil service, and even, I'm afraid, some of those in the media, she said in her keynote speech. Then, Home Secretary Suella Braverman, responsible for government immigration policy, chose the National Conservatism Conference in London to attack government immigration policy. Tom, are we at the rats in the sack stage yet? And can Sunak survive it? Well, Sunak can definitely survive it. I mean, the point about the Conservatives is that they're, is that they're finished. It's done. They are over. They are on their way out. And that will not change. If they want to bring down another leader before then, 
then they're even more finished than they were already. But they are already finished. I mean, clearly what is happening is a jostling for position post Sunak's loss next year. I mean, if I were a Conservative, which I am not, uh, I may never be, I would think, I would hope, would hope that the Conservatives might have the courage to do something which is rarely done and stick with Sunak even after he loses next year. I think that would be the wisest move they could make, but they will not make it because they are not wise. Tom, we saw both of these events, the Conservative Democratic Organisation and the National Conservatism Conference happening within two days of one another. Uh, what do you make of each of them? Are they just like two two legs of the same, uh, same uh, wobbly chair or what? Well, they are slightly different. I mean, the, the, the Lord Crudders thing is just the Boris Johnson fan club, isn't it? And there are sufficient, there is a sufficient chunk of the Conservative Party that still thinks Boris Johnson is the solution, even though he's very clearly the problem. Um, and they were all there, I mean, Andrea Jenkins singing God Save the Queen, or the King rather, twice. Um, like, there are, there are some of them who seem to think that because things are now far worse than they were in the last days of Boris Johnson, that therefore bringing Boris Johnson back would make things better in the sense that like, you know, George, Boris Johnson was the nuclear bomb that blew up everything, right? And now his fans want to say, well, look, if you look at the short nanoseconds between the explosion and its aftermath, we were still quite popular. So why don't we go back to that happy time? Well, it's not going to work and they can't go back. The other part, the national, because this, this thing that's happening for the next three days is even madder. I mean, I think it's funded by a US think tank and actual members of the cabinet are taking it in turns to go there in order to criticise government policy, which is completely and utterly wild. But to me, there seems to be no problem for Suella Braverman, for whom the rules of politics just don't apply because she, I think she's just too stupid to understand them. I mean, she was the one who quit, who announced to, to Peston that she was running for leader, but while she was in the cabinet, but at the same time said she isn't going to quit and she wasn't calling on Boris Johnson to resign. So she just sort of thinks that nothing, that, that no, no normality is borne down upon her because she doesn't really understand what normality is. Hannah, one of the nuggets was uh, Braverman telling the National Conservatism Conference that more Britons should be trained as HGV drivers, fruit pickers and butchers so that we don't forget how to do things for ourselves. It's like the kind of thing your granddad might say. Obviously, as Tom was just saying, in any normal cabinet, you'd be sacked. For yeah, these kind would. of like les majeste type things. And those kind of sentiments are just stupid, aren't they? There's, they don't bear out any economic um, scrutiny whatsoever. Um, but also, as you say, you know, in a normal cabinet, you would be sacked for this kind of thing. So it shows that there really is no functioning leadership now. And as Tom sort of talked about, they're all either lining up their next jobs outside Westminster, um, which means that we're that's, they're the ones that we've stopped hearing from altogether, people who've just disappeared. Or um, like Braverman, they're basically... Um, beginning their leadership election now. And it means that they haven't really got any chance of putting together a decent and coherent manifesto that they can all stand behind because they are all jostling for position already. Um, What an embarrassment. (laughs) Trying to treat it more seriously, this is Braverman attacking the chunk of Conservative MPs who want to relax visa rules so that we can deal with our labour shortage. You know, is this, are the Conservatives increasingly looking like a one-issue party who can only talk about immigration because they haven't got anything to say about cost of living, they haven't got anything to say about economic growth. All they can do is hammer this kind of boats in the channel thing. Yes, and I think to all of us gathered here, that's how that sounds, and I sort of agree with that analysis, but I think it's really important to not forget that 
and I say this with some sadness, certainly um, not derision, that for some people this is their one issue because it's too easy, although incorrect, to link it to every other problem like cost of living, like um, you know education and schooling, like housing. It's probably actually all they've got to present to the electorate now because mm. they're going for this real hard line attitude on it. So that means... It's, it is risky for them because when it goes wrong, when there are no flights to Rwanda leaving, it's very visible that they're failing on this one issue, that they've turned themselves into a one-issue party. But, but they can argue that this is the one issue that, that, that connects everything, even though that's wrong. Mm. So do we think, the, I mean, I'm going to ask everybody, do we think the Conservatives are about to enter their kind of momentum phase where you're in opposition and you are more concerned with litigating your own uh, internal issues and you know, kind of prosecuting your internal vendettas rather than actually building something that's going to make sense to face the challenges the country faces? Possibly. Um, I'm worried about them losing. I want them to lose, obviously. Um, but I'm worried about what happens when they lose. And I think the last couple of days has given us some insight into the knives that are being sharpened and the front runners for trying to inherit the crown. And... they they will certainly feel that they've got to be as xenophobically batshittery as possible in order to uh, win the leadership. And then I worry what that does to Labour and, you know, if if Labour's victory isn't a massive resounding majority and they sort of feel that they have to maybe pander towards some of this um, more nativist, mentality that that we've obviously seen a lot from uh, this government over the last uh, five or six years, if if not before that. I mean, don't forget, David Cameron wrote the 2005 manifesto for, um, what's his name? Howard, Michael Howard, that was one. (laughs) Um, And it was a pretty, pretty xenophobic manifesto, that one. Um, So yeah, I'm sort of worrying about what's happening to the whole Overton window because of all of this um, and how sort of far it's, it's shifting away from where we would hope it to be as more progressive uh, centre-left liberals. I mean, is it is this the national conservatism thing? Is it fringe nonsense, or should we actually worry about it? Do you think? I th- I think we should worry about it um, because I think it's a deepening and a radicalising of the rump that is left of conservative support in the UK. Um, it's a kind of Tea Party move, and I was just looking at at Twitter before we came on to record this and people alerted me to the fact that Miriam Cates and Danny Kruger have set up something called New Conservatives Limited um, and you can look for them on Companies House and then when you look at the people with significant control it's something called the New Social Covenant Unit Limited um, and this was all set up in May 2023. So this is a an organised, concerted thing, and it is the kind of faith, family, flag stuff, but but on steroids. Um, it it is looking like it's the kind of organisation that talks about sex education and all of the things that that we would take a very opposite view um, to, to many of them on in terms of empowering. Uh, women and young people, um, and and is a, a resurrection of, of really grotesque culture war stuff. So I think we I think we have to be worried about it because it is here, it is well funded, um, it is led by people who consider themselves charismatic, and they are being quite well organised. So I don't think it's something that we can just sort of 
you know, laugh off. Hannah, um, Miriam Cates, who appears to be a rising star on, on, on the right and has been popular in these conferences, said over the weekend that falling birth rates are the one overarching threat to British conservatism and indeed the whole of Western society, as if those two are the same thing. <laughs> but, you know, have more babies plugs right into the kind of deranged great replacement theories. So have more babies providing their white. Yeah. You know, it their does white feel distance. horribly close to that. Yeah. Grotesquely, it makes your skin crawl a bit. Um, mm. Also, she often doesn't seem to realise the implication of anything she says. Mm. Um she also called in the same um, diatribe about for better for support for stay-at-home mothers, which she uh, posited could include household taxation, which is where you are taxed on your household income if you're, you're married rather than what each of you individually earns as partners. Completely missing the point about why we got rid of that in the first place is that it traps women as subjects of their higher-earning partners and so on and often traps them in domestic violence situations. Um, and, you know, she's she's really clever at, picking some of the things that I know a lot of women in midlife would really grab onto, which is about recognising the economic value of care work and child rearing and so on. But then, you know, yes, we should reward that economically, but but through some kind of redistribution programme, a progressive programme that recognises the economic value of all that work, not through just basically getting tax cuts for married blokes. Well, Gavin Barwell, who I'm not much of a fan of, but he pointed out that immediately Mog attacked this idea as not as antithetical to conservatism. And Gavin Wallace went, now this shows that like the total incoherence of thought. Absolutely on the that, like, yeah. Make your mind up, do you want more kids or do you not want more kids? And run through the implications of yes. everything you're saying. She really doesn't seem to think that these, these ideas and these policies through to their logical conclusions. Tom, one of the triggers for all this restiveness on the Tory right was Kemi Badenoch's climb down on the retained EU law bill. The deadline for scrapping all EU laws is going to be replaced by a list of 600 changes that they want to implement by the end of the year. This was hilarious. It managed to enrage everybody from Marc Francois to the Speaker, Lindsay Hoyle. Are we watching the last sort of embers of Brexit kind of die in public here? Well, you were talking before about um, are the Tories returning to their momentum phase? Um, and of course, they've been in their momentum phase since 2016. Like the, the momentum phase happens. What you mean by that, I think, is like when a party loses, it goes mad. And what happened in 2016, which is rarely happens, is a party effectively lost, but remained in government. So they've been doing their fringe infighting simultaneously with governing, which is obviously a complete nightmare for everyone in the country. And this is, is, is a very, very, very clear example of how it's exactly like that. Like, I've, Kemi Badenoch has has come into government and has now realised that all of these mad promises that people like Bill Cash and to a certain extent Jacob Rees-Mogg and co demand, Steve Baker, yada, 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 it's all nuts. And actually, no one really cares. I can't think of... I mean, I know so many people who voted for Brexit. The idea that any of them give a monkey's the number of EU regulations are scrapped or not scrapped by the end of this year or not, nobody cares. So I almost quite applaud her for like just saying this doesn't matter, I've seen the detail, we'd be mad to do this. Of course, it's certainly too late to do the thing that is the the, the most non-mad thing to do, which is just to go back to 2016 and actually say, look, this shit just doesn't work and it isn't worth it. But they, of course, can't do that. So watching them infight just further over something that no one cares about, just further succumbs them to their inevitable fate, which is coming for them next year without any shadow of a doubt. Naomi, what did you make of that particular... You must have found it particularly sweet watching the climb down on the retained EU law bill, and particularly since literally everybody involved did it with such ill grace. Oh, yeah, beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. And we have to take those uh, 
precious moments of schadenfreude when they come along because it's a very underrated form of therapy I find um uh and yeah beautiful however you did mention uh although they've scrapped the bill in terms of the the you know the the deadline for all of the uh laws lapsing that sunset clause they have got 600 that they're going to implement by the end of this year um so other than you know the 4000 or something ridiculous by the time the national archives and others had trawled through to see how many retained eu laws we actually had and let's just keep an eye on what those 600 are going to be because uh tom's dead right you know most people do not give a monkeys but they're going to give a monkeys i think when they find out what's in here and i wouldn't be surprised if that was all of the stuff around worker protections environmental standards that gets quietly dropped uh, you know this whole let's be like the us where you can dismiss people without any notice um you don't have to give them uh, as much annual leave all of that kind of stuff that conservatives wrongly think doesn't have uh, you know any kind of negative economic impact when we know that it does and that just because the US is performing better than we are masks the fact that it's got huge, huge, huge inequality that we, you know, even worse than ours that we actually wouldn't want. So um, I agree with Tom, but let's just keep an eye on what those 600 are going to be when it's published later this week because they probably won't be pretty. Tom, we were also treated over the weekend to the delightful spectacle of Jacob Rees-Mogg admitting that the despised voter ID legislation really is gerrymandering. But I'm not going to try and do the voice, but he said parties that try and gerrymander end up finding their clever scheme comes back to bite them. As, dare I say, we found out by insisting on voter ID for elections. His key complaint was that old people turn up and come vote conservative. Uh, this is, can you see voter ID uh, limping on? Well, I don't see why the why Jacob Rees-Mogg and Lord Crudus and others admitting what it really was when everybody knows what it really was means that they will now have to get rid of it. I mean, I think it would almost be worse if they got rid of it now. It's far easier for Rishi Sunak to say, well, Jacob Rees-Mogg was bound by a collective cabinet responsibility. They did it and this is why they did it. Um, he's now talking rubbish and he's uh, um, has misspoken. That seems a far more likely outcome than for him to come out and say, actually, yeah, he's right. This was a massive scam that we were all in on. So best hold our hands up and then and scrap it. Uh, <laughs> huger polls. I don't think it's going to work that way. I think they will now ride it out and be made to look even more ridiculous. No, I mean, to be fair to uh, the eminent Lord Crudus, Labour actually did announce plans to extend voting rights to 16 and 17-year-olds and to EU citizens. And, of course, the Mail immediately accused them of trying to rig elections and were absolutely spare. Um, what, what, what do you think of this? I mean, because is, is he really going to drag us back into the EU? Please, please. No. Um, no. Drag, no. Um, maybe inevitably has to do some kind of deal to give a single market access at some point uh, during his parliamentary term in number 10, maybe. Um, but look, I think it's brilliant. Um, I'd give 12-year-olds the vote, to be honest. Uh, they're the ones that have got to live with the consequences of policy the longest anyway. Um, I think it's great. Um, and of course, lots of EU citizens do uh, get the right to vote anyway. Cypriots, you know, so it's all just a nonsense um, to, to try and stoke up uh, anti-Labour sentiment from you know uh, the the what remains of the conservative base um and if only Starmer were the great electoral reformer um some of the stuff that has been announced is fine but all very insufficient without equal votes 
And by that, of course, I mean bringing in PR. But uh, he's very strongly committed to not doing that at the moment, uh, despite the party and the members and the unions and various others all coming out to bat for it. So that's the biggie. Probably won't take us back into the EU, but may yet be persuaded to do the right thing and deliver democratic equality to the people of the UK. What I quite liked about this was giving the vote to EU citizens. It's like the first time I've seen Labour managed to find something that trolls the Conservatives in the way that let's bring back metric, let's bring back imperial measures trolled us, you know, that that sort of symbolic thing. It has been pointed out that um, this is something that Starmer can do with very little cost compared to the vast cost of fixing absolutely everything else. It's a big promise. It doesn't actually cost that much as opposed to all the economic repairs that cost, will cost vast, vast fortunes. Well, of course, if you want some more money in the coffers so that you can spend big, the best thing to do is to uh, remove loads and loads of trade barriers with the EU. Um, And I look forward to seeing some of that in the Labour manifesto as and when it's drafted, because um, they're going to need money. And there aren't very many levers of control uh, to pull when you're in the global economic situation that we are at the moment with high interest rates, with high levels of inflation. So do the thing that you can do and that's get Britain trading properly again and growing again. Now, old people. When the state retirement age in France was raised from 62 to 64 earlier this year, the French public began a spirited contest of who could set fire to the most wheelie bins. We don't do that here. Not yet. But DWP Minister Mel Stride says that eventually we'll have to grasp the nettle of raising the state pension age to 68 amid stalling life expectancy and over half a million people still out of the workforce after COVID. The Conservatives have prospered with a pensioner client vote for as long as I've been paying attention. But are they going to be able to protect that vote as times get tighter? And what will it mean if they can't? Um, Hannah, is, is Mel Stride right? Is it inevitable that we're going to be retiring at 68? Yes, I also am surprised by anyone even still asking that question. I feel like most people under 50 are already expecting to work to 70. As I've previously talked about on this show, most people are getting onto the housing ladder later. They have really long mortgages, often running well into their 70s, and some people are now being mortgaged into their 80s. So the idea that we think we're going to get a chance to retire at 59 or 61 is not true. I am totally expecting to to be still having bang around finding work um, at, at 70, unfortunately. So, yeah. So, I mean, the current plan is that the state pension age of 66 is going to rise to 67 between 2026 and 2028, and then to 68 between 2044 and 2046. So it's going to affect you if you're born after April 1977. But by saying it's going to have to happen soon, when I think Mel Stride is fully aware that he's not going to be in government, does this smell a bit of nasty jobs that the government after us will have to do? Yeah, but then it is a job that someone's got to do. And yes, they're not going to be in government. And let's face it, this is about politics and politically that's sensible. They can just push this along and let someone else deal with it, even though it definitely has to be done. The gerontocracy, the kind of aged client votes, it seems that they they are never challenged on anything. You know, they're mm. never kind of, you know, they're, they're never asked to provide, you know, no matter how tight the economy gets, no matter how, uh, you know, everyone else is, is kind of expected to, is, is bearing a higher tax burden than ever before. Will that always be in place for the Tories or is there a, a, a window to sort of change their it's orientation? A, it's on a funny one, this, because the reason the triple lock started was because historically pensioners were so much worse off. Mm. And, you know, a lot of the current pensioners who are perhaps in their later years who are, 
you know, been claiming a pension for quite a while now, they will remember those earlier years mm. where they really were relatively much worse off. But that has changed so dramatically that it is, it's been quite a few years now since this has been a defensible political strategy. Um, but it was an election winner. I'm not sure it's even an election winner now because if you look at the Tories, mm. yes, they're still really leaning into it. But the voting pattern suggests that they're now down to 15% support at the age of 50. Yeah. Um, so almost all their voters are now pensioners. So, I mean, you're literally talking about a dying out strategy here. Mm. So why they cling on, I've no idea. I think if they are going to run into this election holding it on, of course they will. They can't possibly retain it as a strategy post-election. Will Starmer be bold enough to come out and say quite clearly this is not something we can continue part of our manifesto is that you know a more intergenerational fairness um a policy policies that are based around intergenerational fairness i'm i'm not sure he'll say it in so many terms but i would be highly surprised if post election the triple lock survives yeah Tom, uh, Mel, Stride, the, the, the Mel Stride also said, and this was the bit that the, the Telegraph really ballyhooed, uh, that if everyone who left the workforce during COVID came back into it, uh, they'd be able to cut income tax by 2p. And he was quickly put in his place about that by Hunt and Sunak. But it's not much of an incentive, is it? Come back to work to cause everybody else's taxes by 2p. Um, yeah, I mean, look, what's something that Suella Braverman said today is which they all say all the time, the facts of life are conservative. And I think actually there is something kind of true about that. You know, you work hard, you build up money, you retire, you, you're aspirational. Of course, it's a bit, it's a fig leaf and it doesn't actually bear any relation to the lives that people now lead. If people have got enough money to retire, it's going to be extremely difficult to incentivize them to start working again. I mean, it's strange, isn't it? Right? I feel like so much of politics and so much of the discussion we're having is always couched in sort of millennial versus boomer, right? And everybody ignores that the actual absolute fuckers are the people mainly in their late 50s, mid 50s, maybe a tiny bit older. The ones who've like sort of quietly double bubbled the housing bubble in the sense that they bought a cheap house of their own. And now they've inherited mum and dad's house, not as an asset, but to live in, but, but as actually as cold, hard cash. I mean, I know, I know loads of people in their late 50s who quietly admit, I literally just don't have to work anymore. Um, I'm financially secure. And there is nothing you can do to persuade them to come back. You work, you move in different circles to yeah. me, but I know what you mean. Also, I'm feeling very personally anywhere. attacked here. Like, well, it's got people in the mid and late 50s are a bunch of fuckers. I mean, come I, on. I'm, I'm moving very, very, very <laughs> ordinary circles. And as there are so many people who, who, who have inherited the housing bubble as well as, as, well as benefiting from it. And you, you're not going to be able to talk those people back into work if they don't need to by tweaking the tax re- regime. But what you could do is you might be able to talk some people back into work by saying, if you, you know, not to pay off everybody's income tax, but refinance the NHS, rebuild the country, rebuild a housing stock, invest. That, that's a little bit more of a clarion call, isn't it? Yeah, but I mean, you can also ask people to donate their like um, estate on their death to the government, but they never do. Um, I don't think people I don't I don't think people are going to go back to their job in order to like rebuild the country for the next generation because people are just not like that well we've seen episodes of idealism in the past i mean admittedly you tend to need a war before that but you know we have seen episodes (laughs) of people wanting to put their you know other people first you have to believe in the country and believe in the um believe in uh, like a sort of a sense of civic duty And, and i don't really see how you are going to restore a sense of civic duty 14 years into a government that the people who do think like that 
now are sort of utterly loathe. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go if I could, if, if I was, you know, late fifties and I'd retired and I could maybe afford to do one or two days a week work week. And if, I, if someone wanted me to, but it was Suella Bravman asking me to, I just wouldn't do it. Well, yeah, but what if it was a what if it was a kind of a, a national mission Tony Blair type of figure who was presenting the idea of a renewed country? <laughs> and you laugh now, but at the time, and Naomi, I can see her shaking her head on the video screen. But you know, the the, the rhetoric of New Labour at the time was, we are actually going to rebuild and fix this country. So I don't think I don't think it's that insane. And I don't think they asked people to come out of retirement to just go back to their old jobs to do I, it, did they? I think no. there's t- so there are the people that Tom's talking about definitely exist and it's like a significant mm. number. But they're also the other thing that's missing from this conversation is the large number of people who are too ill to work. Yeah. Uh, also in their 50s and so on. Post-COVID, quite a lot of people with long COVID, all kinds of illnesses, people waiting for surgery that isn't coming around on the NHS. So the two cohorts you've got are people, as Tom says, like, why would you come back from taking a holiday every two months to a foreign country and enjoying your incredibly wealthy retirement to do some boring job that you were glad to have got rid of versus the people who really would love to be back at work because they want and need to earn more but literally cannot and are wasting you know away their days having to like watch daytime tv because they're too ill to work and not to mention the the contradictions between all of these policies that we've been discussing if you've got miriam kate saying that we should breed for britain but at the same time, you've got cohorts who are delaying all of those major life decisions because uh, they know that they've got to fund themselves for far longer, that they won't have the security of their own home from which to do so, that the chances of the NHS being there for them in their own old age in a meaningful sense, and certainly in the way that it was for their parents and grandparents is non-existent. You know, these policies, they don't sit together. No one's going to be wanting to have more children uh, at, at the same time as, as telling them, oh, and by the way, you know, you're not going to be able to retire till you're 89. Yeah. Well, it's have more children, but also get back to work. Oh, by the way, your nursery place costs one and a half grand a month. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, um, and um, your parents who are ill, you've got to pay for their social yeah, care because yeah. they know you're not available to support them. Yeah. Well, I mean, that first group of people you talked about a moment ago, two holidays a year and doing extremely well and not. Two holidays not... a year? One every two months, in my experience, my parents. So that that group you were just talking about, Hannah, like multiple holidays a year and uh, multiple homes, you're saying like, you know, you're not going to be able to get them back in, into work. Well, perhaps one way to get them back into work is to, is to tax wealth, yeah. and to, to actually to remove some of that and kind of place some of the burden on those people that the rest of us are having to pay. We'd love to see it. Yeah, I know. You, I mean, you're not going to get it from this lot, are you? But it's not entirely impossible. It, you know, people can be kind of encouraged and coerced. Yeah. Oh, there's an interesting feature in the Times this week that's worth having a look at, which is about um, the, the middle, what they claim is the middle. It's not the middle at all. It's the very top. People who are earning a joint income of 200000 a year. So, I mean, extremely wealthy people. But it was showing how the spoils of that lifestyle, private, two kids in private school, a nice house in, in a well-located place, as they put it in their terms. Enviable was the enviable, phrase. Yeah. En- an enviable lifestyle, which obviously includes a huge house in the middle of Surrey and private school and a posh car and multiple foreign holidays a year for your family um what was i mean obviously that's ridiculous it's not aspirational it's extreme wealth however if you just accept the premise for one second and disregard your fury at the concept that if you look at the stats they provide in that piece actually it is clear that those people who aspire to those kind of particular lifestyles they do have to earn so much more than they did 10, 15, 20 years ago to achieve that lifestyle. And there is an issue around, uh, you know, how the tax system works in terms of 
aspiration and so on, of course I think they should be taxed more. But it, but I think it's also interesting that those people are not working as hard as they could be because they're obsessed with how much tax they're paying. And so it's not a daft question to ask, you know, to ask around that. Naomi, Melstride doesn't think it's in our national psyche to start rioting and burning things over the state pension. Margaret Thatcher didn't think that was the case about the poll tax, and uh, and yet it happened. Um, you know, we are constantly amazed at the willingness of the French to set stuff on fire when they don't like it, and the passivity of the British public. Um, do you think that is set in stone and can never change? I don't think it can never change, but when I think about, you know, my friends and family who just don't give a shit about politics, don't see themselves as kind of active citizens, um, you know, they're just, they don't really pay much attention to the news, they live their life, whatever. And I think, well, what would it take for somebody like them to actually riot? I think it would have to be something as extreme as not being able to feed their children. When you think about the poll tax riots and that era you still had incredibly strong unions um you 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 had a, just a more active citizenry and a, and a different political culture than we do now and i i just think riots he, he probably is right i think this is probably yes another one of the dreadful things this government will do that will inevitably just kind of suck up <laughs> Finally, we hope you enjoyed Eurovision and particularly the alternate Scouse commentary on the red button, giving a platform to the Liverpool accent, one of the most musical and pleasing on our islands. <laughs> Not everybody thinks so. According to a poll on behalf of an outfit called OnBuy.com a while ago, the Yorkshire and the received pronunciation accents score best for trustworthiness. Unfortunately for me and friend of the podcast, Minnie Raman, the Scouse and Brummie accents were in the doldrums, polling at 8 and 4% for trustworthiness. We do obsess with that over accents in this country. Is it just a proxy for class or are we right to judge people by their twang? Um, Tom, RP is second place on the list <laughs> for trustworthiness. Where, where have these people been for the past? I mean, the poll was in 2020. <laughs> they had plenty of evidence of what people who speak with an RP <laughs> accent are likely to say and it's most likely to be a tissue of lies. You do wonder, don't you? Is, is there something distinctly British about being so kind of obsessed with accents? Uh, I definitely don't think it's distinctly British. No, I mean, I think sadly, I think the most d defining British characteristic is to think that everyone, something that everyone does is distinctly British, like queuing and talking about the weather. I mean, every corner of the United States has different accents. I mean, my mum was a French teacher and she lived in Paris for a bit and she retired to a French village near Catalonia and at first couldn't understand a word anyone said, literally not one word. But I mean, as you say, generally speaking, accents are just uh, like a proxy for class, aren't they? And by class, I don't even really mean class because class is quite a complicated subject. It's just money. I mean, you don't hear as many Brummies and Scousers and so on on the news because they tend to not make it as far in life because they weren't as rich to begin with. And on that front, personally attack so the game. Worse. <laughs> you're, you're, that's a defense, <laughs> not an attack. Um, but in, I mean, the thing is, in my adult lifetime, everything's got so much worse, not better. And that's so depressing. I mean, just look at pop music. I mean, it's an actual tragedy that <laughs> all, of, all of the all new pop music tends to be made by private school kids. Oh, the Brit like, school, they've all got like that, you know, well, hybrid Like Jarvis South Cocker, London. I mean, you could, you could name them all. I mean, all, all of the, if you listed all the great pop stars from the years, I don't know, when pop began, 1960 to about 2003, 
they'd be from all over the country and everyone from about 2003 onward, half of them would be private school boys. And that is really depressing. I think you talk about class. I have noticed, because it's uh, obviously my, my specialist subject, I've noticed people intensifying their scout accents who might not necessarily, it might not be in truth as rough and as 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 intense, but there is that kind of like going for the catarrhal, are kind of thing, which... Uh, <laughs> I don't know what you mean, Andrew. <laughs> That was actually quite good, Naomi. Give what are you talking go. about? So do you remember the uh, the, the fantastic um, BBC drama, The Responder, with Martin Freeman? Um, I, I, my mum was very impressed by the by Martin Freeman's action. Thought it was absolutely spot on. Uh, but the, I, I heard the, uh, the the writer on the Today programme saying that um, it wasn't the only reason that they recruited him, but it was very good that Martin Freeman was able to say chicken. <laughs> Very important. He's he was very good. He yeah. was very. I was really impressed with that. Mm. So, Hannah, can you uh, can you stop yourself from making instant judgments on people from their accent? Do you sort of immediately fill in a backstory? I don't think I do. Mm. Maybe I'm being too. I don't know. Uh, giving myself too much um, kudos for doing. I, but I don't think I do because I've had loads of accents in my life. Have you? So I was born in Doncaster. My first accent was broad Yorkshire, but then we moved. Let's, let's hear it. I can't actually do it now. Here's the thing. You must be able Then to. I moved when I was seven years old to South Oxfordshire, mm-hmm. and I forced myself to speak like this because huh? I got bullied in my school, my primary school, for playing it. I remember particularly I said to one... Uh, what's the weather forecast? And he said, he was like, I don't know what the weather forecast is, but I can tell you what the weather forecast is. And I went home and was like, I, I literally seven, eight years old, I sat in my bedroom and thought, I've got to get rid of this. Isn't that really sad? And I remember that day. And I forced myself to speak like this. And now I do. However, I then moved to Manchester for university and I've got lots of family living crew. And during the four or five years I lived in Manchester, all my vowels started shortening again, mm. uh, and I, I do think I code switch a lot. So when I'm around Northerners, I start to shorten my vowels. Mm. I still say the number one as one, whereas everybody down south actually says one, which to me is to win something, and mm. that's never changed. So I feel like I kind of, I don't think I do judge people because mm. I, you know I feel like it's for that code switch, accent. which I've not really heard of before. But um, I do find myself, I will find myself in a cab in like Los Angeles or something, and be going, all right, mate, as if he's going to make any difference and any make any sense at yeah, all uh, to this, like, Somali cab driver in Los Angeles. But yeah. you can't stop yourself doing it. I mean, I do think everybody does it to an extent, mm. and I don't think it's something we should judge people for. I think it's really natural to try and... It's not mimicry. It's about... Um, recognizing common points yeah. uh, you know between people and uh, I went to a state school in Digcot which is uh, in South Oxfordshire where a lot of people have quite a strong farmer kind of accent which m- my uh, husband says that when I'm really tired I start to sound a bit farmer as well <laughs> so like I've got all of these things and I, and I do think we all do it I think we all yeah. play on those kind of uh, yeah those oh but come on stuff. like there's it, when it's Steve McLaren doing the Dutch accent. Do you remember that? Yeah, that's true. Oh, God, it was so cringe. And also when Rishi Sunak says mate all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's cringe. That's because Rishi's so extraordinary a human being and it doesn't quite work. But but it's when you even change your sentence structure. Mm. Yeah, it's not just that you're adopting the accent, but you're actually sort of mimicking how a European might 
Yes, that's completely But yeah, I, I do agree I, with that. That is just not being yourself. But, yeah, but I think there yeah. are different ways of being yourself and that doesn't mean that you're being like um, rude or, or classist or anything. So a, a lot of these, these polls, because they, they, it seems to be a perennial of like, if you want to get in the news, run a poll on accents. What's the sexiest? What's the most trustworthy? Uh, what's the best light? But most of them seem to be based on 30-year-old ideas of what accents are. So they never talk about more, you know, accents of newer coinage. No, like, this is true you know like like uh yorkshire asian like baroness Velasi. Oh, i've got a fantastic accent i love her, her voice or you know multicultural london english you know so most of the most of the teenagers in my local area um whatever their racial background they all speak that yeah. mle multicultural london english i actually think it's a really great way of erasing sort of classism and racism yeah that everyone's really different everyone's from completely different backgrounds and it's a common voice. And, of course, some of those kids are co-switching, just like I used to do when I was at school. I'd be like, are you going downtown or whatever in mm. Digcot? Um, you know, obviously I didn't speak like that to my parents. There will be kids that go back and they're quite posh to their mum and dad in South London. But fine. I yeah. like I like the fact that there's this kind of common accent that they can all share at school. Yeah. When Joey Barton was playing for Marseille and then he started answering questions in the press conference at the end in a in a – Fluent French accent, but saying English words, and then another <laughs> ball. But the, but the point the point about that is that he was actually asked afterwards by by about it because it became so hilariously funny. And he is a scouser, isn't he, Joey Barton? And he said that when he moved to France, nobody could un- he can't speak French. Nobody could understand a word he was saying. It's only when he started talking to his teammates <laughs> in English, but with yeah. a ridiculous French accent, that they actually started to understand him. I used to love it when you get people like Jan Mulby turning up with a kind of mixture of, you know, they'd just be training for such a long time with the Liverpool side that they'd sort of generate this kind of Norwegian scouse. And, oh, yeah, uh, You know, great. unique one-off Galapagos Island accents. There was, there was a piece <laughs> in The Guardian this week about apparently young Americans are starting to use the British accent as a kind of amusing social... Uh, I don't know, like interruption to avoid awkwardness. So, like, oh. if you're how, if you're telling your housemate you need to put the bins out, they say it in a British accent because it takes the kind of awkwardness that you're telling your housemate to put the it bins out. It doesn't work here. People are always telling me that <laughs> British accent doesn't make me put the bins Isn't out. It's weird. Mm. I thought that was a really strange thing. Yeah. Well, we just heard Naomi doing a very creditable scouse, and of course, uh, your non iron is uh, renowned. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I really was heartened to hear what Hannah was saying because. Um, I'm somebody who has two accents. I mean, people speak different languages and rather like Hannah, I had, you know, th- this accent when I moved to rural Northern Ireland in the early 1990s and was bullied mercilessly for the first couple of days at primary school. And so for survival, I adopted very, very quickly a very convincing mid-Ulster accent and then it sort of morphed into a slightly more Belfast accent uh, when I went there for A-level because I then got bullied for sounding like uh, a farmer um, to the city people for having my more rural uh, Antrim Derry border accent so I think you can have more than one accent um, but I do have a range I have a repertoire uh, I can do quite a few um, and also I find it really really hard when I'm speaking to people with another accent not to slip into it because I know that that appears very very rude and I think the hardest one for me to resist is Edinburgh if I it's such a beautiful lilting accent and they pronounce English much more correctly than many of the English so like a wh words you know the what what are you doing where who you know whereas we're just you know what which where oh god hot now 
So who are our accent heroes then? I'm going to admit I go weak at the knees when Winifred Robinson starts talking because mm-hmm. she's got that beautiful soft scouse accent. It's like, you know, it is, it is musical and it is, it's lovely to hear. Hannah, who are your accent uh, heroes? I love a kind of really rough Mancunian accent. Oh, God, really? Yeah. I don't know what, the proper me. nasal arcade yeah. Manchester? Yeah. Mm. yeah. Well, that's your Britpop past, it you is. see. Yeah. Tom? Oh, the best accent in the UK by far is Bolton and the surrounding areas. Like in my room in Westminster, there's a couple of us who've been talking for almost a full decade entirely in quotes from Phoenix Nights. And frankly, they never get any less funny in my view. You know, like always manage to capture a look of excitement rurally seen on an Uradale. And then they make um, and then <laughs> Lindsay That's Hoyle, very good. And then Lindsay Hoyle gets the job of speaker and it's like he's answered our prayers because then you get that all the time. And I, could, <laughs> I, would, I mean, I would listen to that all day. Yeah, it's it, in the I've, future and it's Gaelic bread. Yeah, well, I've got, I've got a mate who's from um, she's she's from Clitheroe and said that the, the local accent is and this makes this Lindsay Hoyle always reminds me of this. The local accent can be encapsulated as uh, the opportunities for life are literally limitless around here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the most the cheeriest L is literally limitless. We've we've done a lot of scouts, haven't we? But in two thousand and five, when I went to New Zealand. For various reasons, I ended up on the airport bus from Auckland Airport to Auckland City Centre, and I had to get it about 10 times. And it has this, like, video of, like, Auckland tourist attractions, but the actor is a scouser. And we must have seen it so many times. And me and my mates who went there, there were lots of us who went backpacking we were on that bit, there were four of us together. And this is now 20 years on, whenever we see each other, we can remember that, that Auckland tourist ad with the scouser, word for word, and it's like... And he goes to some all-you-can-eat restaurant. And he's like, "This is just me starter, and you can eat as much <laughs> as you like." And it's it's so good. I mean, I, I mean, I'll have, maybe I'll have to dig it out on YouTube. But this guy, this guy's accent is burned into my brain. I was going to say that was a little bit off base for a Scouse accent there, Tom, but never mind. <laughs> but I will rec- I will recommend for the listeners um, look up Korean Billy on YouTube because he is a Korean guy who does the accents of the world, uh, or well, specifically of Britain. And his, his Scouse episode is very, very good. But he does everywhere else as well. So Korean Billy is definitely worth listening to. Just to close off there, um, Naomi, who's your accent hero? I am a real sucker for a South Wales accent. Mm. So think Ruth Jones, Joanna Page, that, that sort of Gavin and Stacey. Nikki Wyatt. Oh, yeah. absolutely perfect. I absolutely love it. And I could listen to it all day long. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, I, I hope we've managed to not offend all of the listeners there with that. <laughs> and I, at least I didn't do my brummy. So we've come to the end of the show and it is time for the calming mental balm of escape routes. What are the things, the books, the television, the whatever that have been distracting our panel from the horror of politics this week? Tom. I mean, it's tragic though it is to admit it. I have to say mainly Eurovision. Like I've not really bothered with Eurovision for the, for the last 20 years, but I did get really hooked right back into it this year. And then on Sunday morning, I noticed that the official Spotify Eurovision playlist, which I've been listening to relentlessly, had already been like rejigged into the correct finishing order, first to last. So I've since then become like deeply obsessed with calibrating my own personal standing order against the final finishing table. And the only way you can really do that, <laughs> and like, and like, 
to, to give you a glimpse into how odd this has become, if you watch the official videos of the YouTube songs on YouTube, like the pre-roll ads are all for, um, for Muller Corners, I assume because of some glitch to do with May Muller. And I've now watched so many that today I ended up buying, for the first time since the mid-90s, I think, a Muller <laughs> Corner. Um, and the, the cho- <laughs> Advertising <laughs> works, guys. Yeah, yeah, like the chocolate <laughs> cornflake and banana one. And it is exactly unchanged from its mid-90s glory. And I, I suspect they're probably going to end up getting quite a bit of cash out of me now because I'm not going to be stopping at one. And you're going to be having Finder's crispy pancakes for dinner. <laughs> and, yeah. Tom, I'm so excited to hear that you're into Eurovision because it's a personal obsession of mine for like years and years. Obsessed. So, uh, but that's not my answer. But, I haven't watched it for 20 years. And then I, I just, I don't know, because it was in the UK. Oh, it's just a it. thing of joy. Every year it's a thing of joy. I wrote an A-level <laughs> general studies question about it. God. That's how much I love it. But my answer is something a bit different. Mm-hmm. I uh, am uh, into series three of the Bureau. So I watched the first two series a couple of years ago, um, thought it was great. But then it got to that point on, on Amazon, like with all of these things, where to watch the third series or something you're already really enjoying, you had to pay more money, join Sundance Now or some rubbish. I put it off for ages and then just decided recently, actually, I do want to watch this thing. I care how it ended. What is it? The Bureau is a series, it's a French series about uh, the intelligence services. Mm-hmm. And it's set in sort of 2015, 16, um, where ISIS is uh, the primary kind of threat and interest. Um, so, I mean, it's brilliant. I'd highly recommend it. Um, the first two series are available on Amazon. After that, you've got to sign up to Sundance now to watch the rest. However, I have started series three and it's just as good as the rest. And I will be finishing it now. Um, the thing that's really interesting watching it now is just to remember how far we've come from ISIS, mm. you know, being the kind of huge global talking point. And now we're obviously, Ukraine's the kind of key focus yeah. and it, how quickly we move on from such horror. Um, it, it, I really I really felt that as yeah. well. But they, definitely They're like worth the watching. fidget spinners of terrorism now, aren't they? Yeah, just like absolutely brilliant though. It's um, if, you, if you like a subtitle thing, get, get yeah. stuck in. Naomi, how about you? What's your escape route? It's planning holidays that I can't <laughs> afford. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm not in the aforesaid category of uh, holidays every other month. But I find almost as much pleasure in thinking about researching and booking holidays as I do the actual holiday itself. And so for the past week or so, I've been planning a trip along the wild Atlantic way in Ireland. So um, you can do the whole thing from Donegal to Cork. Uh, I haven't got the time to do that much or or the money, but uh, I am planning to do quite a bit of like the Connemara coast and get some live music in Galway and things like that. So yeah, it's been really lovely kind of watching other people's vlogs on YouTube that have done similar routes, the hikes that they've done, the secret beaches that they've managed to find, um, and then plotting out how I'm going to spend my days doing that after Trade Unlocked, after trade which on- is consuming everything <laughs> in my waking hours other than holiday planning. Are you going to Cork? I'm not going to oh, Cork on this one, no. Best restaurant I've ever been to in the whole world is in Cork. Ooh. Uh, well, mine... Uh, it's uh, it's it's music again. I went to see a fantastic artiste. He's not a band. There's only one of him called Warrington Runcorn Newtown Development Plan, <laughs> and it's one guy and some synthesizers and a load of projections, and it's brutalist electronics. It is. Uh, it's all. To, it's it's films of ring roads from 1972. Amazing. Public libraries. Everything is burnt umber or brown. Mean. 
uh, all it's like 12 minute long just chords going bong and the the kind of effect is it's a bit like if you went and looked at Preston bus station which like, is amazing which is amazing and if you stood and looked at it for about an hour and you really got into the shapes and the angles you just started to groove on that it's the music equivalent of that and his whole thing is about his whole his whole view of the world is is that we used to have town planning we used to have a utopian ideal that we could build places where people would want to to live and to work and to interact and there would be libraries and leisure facilities and lots and lots of roundabouts and signage and all this kind of stuff and you look at it now and it's like a, it's like an alien world it's it's like a kind of this kind of lost paradise of uh you know of, of an ordered world it died in the 80s it was wiped out when we just decided to let the market let rip and now we've got the chaos that we live in but there's something really poignant about it and the way that he kind of uh, soundtracks it with these you know, very raw analog synthesizers which is very much my cup of tea um is is just absolutely fascinating the kind of the line that he's got on his uh, on his on his Twitter pages, music for a broken concrete utopia. He's got a new album coming out this month called "The Nation's Most Central Location," which I believe is Warrington and Roncon. So there you go. So I recommend it hugely if you like the electronic equivalent of staring at a breeze block for an hour. And that's the end of the Tuesday edition of Oh God What Now. Thank you for listening, and thank you for joining me to Hannah Fern. Thank you to Tom Peck. Thanks very much, and to Naomi Smith. Thanks, guys. Listeners will be back on Friday or Thursday if you're a Patreon backer. Don't forget, we're live on stage at the Leicester Square Theatre on Wednesday the 24th of May. Visit leicestersquaretheatre.com for tickets and we'll see you there. Until then, here's our theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and we'll see you next time. Ah, God, what now? Was presented by Andrew Harrison with Naomi Smith, Tom Peck and Hannah Fern. The managing editor was Jacob Jarvis with additional production from Kasia Tomasiewicz, Chris Jones, and me, Alex Reese. Art direction by Mark Taylor and James Parrott. Oh God, what now? Is a Podmasters production. <laughs>